My name is Tom Chick, and you are listening to the Quarter to Three Games Podcast for, oh, you know what? For leap year. Uh, yes. once, uh, once every four years is February 29th. That's, I actually know the date this time uh, uh-huh. because it is leap year. I'm impressed. Yeah, normally I just take a stab in the dark, and I tend to arrive within roughly the seven days that we're actually recording, and I think I got it. I, I hit a bullseye today. Uh, my name, as I said, is Tom Chick, and my game of the week this week is not Syndicate. Oh, hey. My name is uh, Jason McMaster, and my game of the week is not Tiddlywinks. Mm. And my name is Dave Markell, and my game of the week is not... Crusader Kings 2. What? Oh, come on. No. Are you sure about that, Dave Markell? I'm, I'm positive about it, and we'll get into my reasons for it when we get to the games portion of the podcast. Interesting. Now, uh, Dave Markell, before we get to the real reason that we have had you on this podcast, I confess we have ulterior motives, and we'll get okay. to those in a second. Yeah, those, those will come out shortly. The theme music was uh, a slight indicator of what that might have been. But you know what? We'll get to that in a second. Uh, First, I want to talk about what you have in common with Matt Damon from the movie Rounders. Well, aside from the fact that we're both fantastically good-looking guys, I play a lot of poker. Uh, Now, when you say you play a lot of poker, it's like uh, like maybe once a week you and your buddies have like a Nickelodeon game and, and... uh, and drink a couple of beers, and then you call it quits at like ten, right? Like that kind of thing. No, not really. I, I I'd label myself semi-pro if you had to if you had to put a put a label on it. I make a fair amount of income from playing poker. I play it very seriously. I try to win uh, wherever I am, uh, which lately is almost exclusively live. We'll get into the details on that later, I'm sure. But yeah, I'm a pretty serious poker player. Now, when you say exclusively live, I happen to know for a fact, because you and I met a few years ago when I was down in San Diego, that that's your stomping ground. You live around there. Now, if I'm not mistaken, there aren't a lot of casinos in San Diego. You know, surprisingly, there are. Uh, there's a number of There's a number of Indian casinos to the east and northeast of the city. And then there's a couple of card rooms, which pretty much spread just poker and blackjack within San Diego proper. No, wait, I have a dumb question. So... A card room? That's that's like a casino. It's like gambling, right? You can do that. What is that? What's going on there? Yeah, card rooms are kind of a California thing. You you don't find them in in most other states. They're like Ocean's Eleven or the Commerce City Casino up closer by you. They don't have slot machines. They don't have craps. They don't have roulette. They just play cards there. Hence the term card room. And you can find some uh, some small games, some big games, poker 24-7 at all of these places. Well, and they're not run by uh, Amer- Native Americans? Like, wait, wait a minute, how does... I, I guess I don't really understand the whole rules about gambling, and uh, I, don't, I don't gamble a lot, and I'm a poker player, but I could, if I wanted, go to that place you mentioned in Commerce City and legally, like, play serious poker. Absolutely. 
There's a limited number of them, and I am not an expert on the legislation behind the California card rooms, but it's my understanding that, you know, 15, 20 years ago, they allowed a limited number of them to be opened. They haven't expanded that number since then, and there's no real inclination to do so. The Indian gaming casinos don't don't like them, obviously, and don't want there to be any more competition. But the ones that exist have been kind of grandfathered into permanent existence, and you can find them, as I said, in the L.A. and San Diego areas. There's a couple up in the Bay Area as well, a few others scattered around the state. Now, uh, describe for me what it's like, like when you do play poker, because I'd assumed you meant online poker, and I know that that whole scene has changed dramatically recently. Uh, but before we talk about that, describe for me what it's like when you go to these card rooms. Uh, yeah, just... I'll be glad to. And um, let's definitely get back to online, because for years, that's mainly what I did. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's what I would do if I had my druthers on the issue. But yeah, when you go to a card room, uh, the one I go to most is Ocean's Eleven in Oceanside. It's uh, right off the 5 freeway near the ocean, and it's got a bunch of murals depicting the guys from the original Ocean's Eleven movie, not the remake. Mm -hmm. Anyway, you go in, uh, there's a front desk, there's a couple armed security guards on duty at all times, because there's a lot of cash floating around there, and they need to be careful. There's a small room off to the right where they play blackjack and uh, more gambling-based games. And then a couple very large open rooms for nothing but poker. Uh, mainly No Limit Hold'em, some Pot Limit Omaha, and some Limit Hold'em. They have a tournament room, they have a main room, they have guys running to and fro delivering chips to the tables, they have a restaurant that will bring food to the table so you don't have to get up and go anywhere. They try to keep you there, keep you happy, keep you playing as much as they can. And what kind of people do you find in these places? It's a pretty broad cross-section, except for one thing. Most of them are guys. I'd say the guy-girl ratio at these casinos is on the order of 15 to 1 when it comes to the players, maybe a little bit more. But in terms of age range, it's everybody from 21-year-olds to I know a guy who's 94 at the casino. In terms of uh, uh, education levels or backgrounds, you can find literally everybody, every profession, uh, every economic level, everybody there just either playing for fun or trying to seriously take each other's money. Now, uh, if I may ask, uh, I don't know if this is an indelicate question, but uh, how often do you tend to do this and for how long? Yeah, I go probably on average about five days a week. And I usually don't play for more than four or five hours at a crack because my attention starts flagging. And if you can't think really clearly at the table, you're giving up an edge. In fact, you may well drop down to what we call the, the level of the fish, the, the targets at the table. You're no longer a shark. You're a fish. You're, you're going to get eaten by the guys who know what they're doing. But, yeah, a normal week I'll put in 20, 30 hours at the tables. And, and are you, do you tend to play with the same people, or when you go into a place like this, is it a lot of new faces? I imagine some of them are familiar to you, yeah? Yeah, there's definitely regulars, and since I play that often, I would qualify as a regular myself. The regulars show up on a pretty routine basis, know each other, but frankly, uh, given... Given my choice, I avoid the regulars because regulars, as you would expect, are pretty serious about the game. And they're not the the most profitable or the most fun people <laughs> to have at your table. You, you want to find someone who doesn't know what he's doing, like me and McMaster, right? Please come to San Diego, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> and you too, Jason. All right. Uh, McMaster, 
Let's go. Let's do it. Let's. I think right. if you if you and I team up, I think we can beat Dave Markell at poker. <laughs> is possible. that allowed? Is that allowed? By the way, are there team games? Can we do like two v two in poker? No, you can't. Oh, in fact, it's called yeah. collusion, and if they catch you at it, armed men who are very angry will be escorting you to the parking lot. Okay, well then we're not going to do that. We're going to stick to StarCraft, getting our asses kicked at StarCraft Two uh, in two v two. That's probably a better plan. <laughs> now, uh, so you said you used to play online, but but uh, tell us a bit about what's happened with online poker recently. And boy, I can imagine how happy these card houses must be about what's happened with online poker too, right? Oh, absolutely they are. Their business has gone up because of the online exodus. Uh, it's a complicated story. Do we? I, I hope we have a few minutes for me to go into this. Sure, no, I will give us like the thumbnail, sure. uh, but uh, what, what I understand is that it's basically shut down. Yeah, you understand correctly. Uh, the story starts back during the Bush administration when a bill called the UIGEA was passed. That's short for the Unlawful Internet Gambling Enforcement Act. And it was passed as a rider to a port security bill, one of the homeland security measures that literally nobody would dare to vote against in Congress. It was stuck in as a way to sneak it through attached to that. Now, do we know who stuck it in? Uh, yeah, it, it was put in by, let's see, uh, Bill Frist, John Kyle, some senators like that, very... Uh, very anti-gambling, very much okay. part of the uh, the moral contingent in the Senate, I believe. Okay, like I wondered if it was maybe the the Indian gambling lobby or something. Like I'm sure there were a lot of people who had a stake in seeing this happen. Uh, what state is Frist from? Do we know offhand? I think he's from Tennessee. Ah, so that does sound like a social conservatism issue. Okay, all right. Yeah. All right. So, anyway, again, so I may be getting a few of the details wrong here because it's been a number of years. But, but the it, UIGEA is the start of all this, and it got Basically, piggybacked onto a homeland security homeland security bill. Right? Nice, very Support sneaky security bill. Right. So the UIGEA basically expanded on the old Wire Act. The Wire Act was put together to prevent uh, organized crime, basically from taking bets over the wire, at the time the telegraph wire, between states. It was a way to, to come down on organized crime, part of the anti-racketeering, anti-mob measures that were being put in place back then. Mm -hmm. And the UIGEA said, okay, uh, we're going to go after the payment processors for online poker because online poker is taking place across the wire. It makes sense. It, it's a reasonable rationale. So they didn't make it illegal to play online. What they did make it illegal to do is transfer the funds out mm -hmm. back to the players. And that was a first step towards making things hard on, on new deposits and people cashing out. And a number of sites left the U.S. market at that time. Party poker, which was the biggest quit. But a bunch of sites didn't, namely uh, the three big ones of Full Tilt and Poker Stars and Absolute Poker. They stuck around for U.S. players, and I was playing on them for years. Well, then Black Friday hit uh, in April of last year. And on Black Friday, the Department of Justice shut down all the U.S.-facing poker sites completely. And it did so saying that the payment processors they were using were actually a form of money laundering. Because mm -hmm. to hide the fact that they were paying players off, that people could still cash out their winnings, they were having to route funds through kind of shady dummy shell corporations. And it was 
legally questionable. Again, I'm not arguing the legality of the Department of Justice stance here, but the net result is that online poker became impossible for Americans to play at that point. On this Black Friday, did people like you lose money? We have money online that we have not been able to touch ever since. It's interesting. I had a feeling that things were getting dicier for online poker, and I'd already moved most of my bankroll off of the online sites. But I still have, I don't know, three, dollars $4,000 stuck on full tilt that I may never see again as a result of this. Now, I have a question. Since this is all like U.S. Department of Justice stuff, mm-hmm. couldn't you just drive across the border, wire your money from full tilt to some Tijuana outlet, <laughs> and then bring it back? I mean, seriously, like, isn't, no. There, no, no, isn't that an option for you? Right. Okay. Okay. A lot of people have left the country as a result of this, have become expatriates to Canada, to Mexico, to various Central American countries, to England, whatever, in order to continue playing. Uh, my problem is that Full Tilt has so many other problems going on that they aren't paying off anybody anywhere right now. Their whole financial edifice, because poker is, was so unregulated, appears to have been a house of cards, almost a Ponzi-like scheme. Ah. Right. DOJ called it. And that money may just be so many fictional digital bytes in a computer's memory somewhere, not actual funds that I can ever access again. Right. Uh, so, so basically, if you want to play online poker in America, it's just not an option. There's no way to do it. Is that correct? I wouldn't go quite that far. There okay. are a couple smaller sites that stayed off the Department of Justice's radar, but I would never risk putting money on them until the legal picture clarifies. And it is actually clarifying. At the end of last year, in December, at the request of some members of Congress, whose names I forget, the the Department of Justice rendered an opinion about Poker and the Wire Act. And fascinatingly, they said that online poker is not covered by the Wire Act. And that statement throws the UIGEA right out the window. And now the rush is on to legalize and regulate and bring online poker back in some form, possibly this year. It may be done at the state level. There are states like Nevada, New Jersey, even California has a bill that's under consideration. They're looking to bring it back at the state level. I'd much rather see federally regulated Uh, online poker because then people from every state would be able to play against each other and internationally as opposed to state regulated where only people in california will be able to play against other people in california it's better than nothing but for the smaller states with smaller populations it's probably not a viable pool right all right well that's kind of i had no idea that that was a developing situation Uh, Mm -hmm. Good luck. I hope that that comes through for you. Uh, I do, because it's a lot easier to just stay at home at my computer in my in my pajamas or my shorts, you know, not have to leave the house, play whenever I want to, et cetera, as opposed to having to actually drive to a casino and deal with people, some of which I really would prefer never to see again. There's and a lot of jerks at, uh, at live poker. And also, I'm sure this is eating into your valuable World of Warcraft time. I don't play WoW, but it eats into my valuable gaming time, so yes. All right, so that's for gambling. Now let's move on to the uh, discussion of prostitution uh, in America. Jason McMaster, is prostitution legal in your state of North Dakota? Uh, No. All right, well, that's so much for that discussion. Uh, Okay, now let's talk about drugs. Jason McMaster... Is it legal to shoot up heroin in North Dakota? Um, no. I'm gonna I'm gonna go no. 
All right. So there we have uh, gambling, prostitution, and drugs. Now firearms. Jason McMaster, how many <laughs> firearms do you own? Uh, personally, jeez, uh, I have a pistol. Wait a minute. Hold on a second. I was actually kidding. You don't actually own a real pistol. Oh, it was given to me by my grandfather, so that cut me some slack. <laughs> oh, it's it's like an heirloom, kind of yeah, like, yeah, kind of like uh, Aragon's sword. I uh, I also own a real pistol, Tom. Wait a minute. Hold on. You live in California. I don't think we're allowed to have those things, are we? Uh, we are. Yes. Uh, and yours is not an heirloom, huh? So what what no. kind of what kind of pistol do you have? You know what? Tell me what kind of pistol it is, and I'm going to tell you uh, what what flavor of bullets it shoots. Okay. I have a Walther P99. That's a 9mm gun. It is. It See? also comes in a 45 caliber, but my wife is much more comfortable with 9mm recoil. See? Now, aren't you... Can I get some props for knowing that through my vast Call of Duty experience? Ah, okay. I thought it might be from your movie experience, because that's also the gun <laughs> that uh, the new Bond uses, you know, Daniel Craig. Yeah, I actually, you know what, that might be why Walther is kind of, uh, that's like in, in most people's vocabulary is the James Bond gun, isn't it? Mm -hmm. yeah. The old PPK, right. Yeah, Walther PPK. Uh, okay, McMaster, what gun does did your grandfather hand down to you? Because I'm going to guess what flavor bullets that one shoots. Hit me. All right, it's a revolver. Oh, I might need more information than that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, it, it's a weird one. Uh, it has nine uh, nine cylinders. In Are the you tank. serious? Is it a Lamette? Yeah. I don't know. I, do I doubt it. Wow, it like, <laughs> I, have, I have no idea. <laughs> it it kind of sounds like Dave Markell might be a gun nerd. <laughs> uh, no, I know a few things, and, and the Lamette's a very famous Civil War pistol used oh, by no. the Confederacy. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, McMaster, do you have to pack it with a, a wad oh. and, and gunpowder? <laughs> no, no, no it's, it's not that old. It's, uh, but yeah, it's a... Uh, it's you a know what, I, I'm really disappointed, McMaster, because I just had this great image of you with like a flintlock tucked into your sash. Swinging, <laughs> and you're swinging from the rope of a schooner. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that does seem realistic. <laughs> I do that all the time. Very Errol Flynn of you there. Yeah, I try. All right, so those are uh, those are all the vices that we've covered before we get into games, gambling, drugs, prostitution, firearms. Join us next week for tobacco and explosives. Uh, but first, and explosive let's, tobacco. <laughs> let's now talk with Dave Markell about why we really brought him here. I'm dreading this. Now, as you could tell from the opening music, which was, of course, the stirring theme to Lord of the Rings. Uh, no, it wasn't. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was. I'm pretty sure uh, it was Jurassic Park, but go on. Oh, please. Nobody can tell the difference. Uh, everybody knows. Everybody, uh, everybody knows a little about Lord of the Rings, but I don't think many people know as much as Dave Markell. So what Jason McMaster and I have conspired to do is try to stump you with a Lord of the Rings quiz. Oh, boy, I'm on the spot. You are. So, welcome, and this has intro music, welcome to the Lord of the Rings quiz. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> what we will do is McMaster will ask you a question, and then I will ask you a question, and then McMaster will ask you a question. The first one to get to three points wins at stumping Dave Markell. Okay, I'll give it my best. All right. So, <coughs> Master, 
Uh, why don't you take over first? What is your first question? I'll be I'll be keeping score here. What is your first question for Dave Markell? Well, I figured we could we could start off easy. Right, right. We don't want to hit him too hard up front. Let's have a little sportsmanship. It's like let right. him, let him get a running start before we open fire. Right, right. So, uh, how old was Bilbo at the beginning of Fellowship of the Rings? Bilbo was a hundred and eleven. Yes, correct. All right, correct. No points for Jason McMaster. All right, here you go, Dave Markell. Dave Markell, where are they taking the hobbits? I assume you mean in the clip you just played, and so I'd have to say Isengard. Very good. All right. He's a slippery one, McMaster. No points for me. Over to you, McMaster. All right, all right. Um, Can you name Gandalf's wizard buddies from back in the day? Well, there are five wizards (laughs) that are mentioned in Tolkien, but only three are given names in The Lord of the Rings. There's Gandalf, Saruman, and Radagast. The other two wizards, the so-called blue wizards, head into the far east of Middle-earth and are referenced somewhat in Unfinished Tales, where they're given a a couple names there. Uh, One is Palatar, and I forget the other, but uh, they don't come into the Lord of the Rings at all. So if this is a Lord of the Rings quiz, I don't think I should have to name them. (laughs) (laughs) All right, fair. Very good. Wow. He is a slippery one. That's good. All right, here we go. How many factions are there? In Lord of the Rings. Factions. Yeah. <laughs> you must mean a game version of Lord of the Rings. I'm sure it's canon, though. You know, they licensed it. They can't be messing around inventing <laughs> factions that don't actually historically exist. So are you talking Lotro or? No, I, yeah. it's, just, it's just Lord of the Rings. Everybody knows this. <laughs> Yeah, probably not me. I think I'm going to have my first uh, first failed answer here. Oh, I'm, I might get a point. Ah, uh, boy. Five. Random guess. Oh, you were so close. It's six because six are like the men are the free peoples, and then six or the, I'm sorry, three are the free peoples, and three are the I don't know evil monsters. So there's there's men, dwarves, and elves. They're the good guys. Then goblins, Isengard, and Mordor. Which and is this from Tom? Oh, Battle for Middle-Earth 2, of course. Okay. <laughs> and, and a later expansion added a seventh faction uh, called Arnor. Nobody, who knows what that is? Uh, oh. they're, they're the ones you never want to play because you've never heard of them. Oh, I've heard of Arnor, and I could have answered that question. Well, they are apparently like the pre-Sauron, Witch King, faction-y kind of thing. And actually, I, I do... Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, all right, so that's a point for me. McMaster, I've pulled ahead. Over to you. All right. Um... What is Frodo's father's name? Drogo. All right, good. Damn. Drogo, that's an awful name for a hobbit. Yeah, it's a little guttural for a hobbit, but Frodo, son of Drogo. Yeah. Well, all right. Uh, Okay, here's the next one. How how much does it cost to ride from Bag End to Bree? I haven't played Lotro in about two years, (laughs) so I... Don't know for sure. Bag and debris. I'm gonna guess and say it's free. Dad gummit. Dad gummit. Why would you guess that? Because you're a supposed bit. to. You're supposed to assume it's that. Because you you can ride if, on your own pony if you're a, mm-hmm. a dwarf or whatever, and you don't have to pay anything. Now, if I had said fast travel, 
it would have cost money, and that would have been one silver. <laughs> but I was trying to trick you because you can ride for free. Ah, dadgummit, Dave Markell. All right, still only one point for me. Over to you, Jason McMaster. Uh, all right. I'm going to – okay, do you know the Silmarillion? Fairly well, yes. All right. I, I love all of Tolkien. Let's, uh, let's jump to the Silmarillion. By whom were the wells of the uh, Ivrin wrought in ancient days? The by whom were the wills of who wrought? Wells of the Ivrin. Ivrin. <laughs> Can you spell that? Sure. I-V-R-I-N. Or it might have been, was it Irvin? Maybe? No, surely not. The the wills of the... Wow. the well, like a, a water well. Oh, the wells. Wells. I'm sorry, yeah. I misheard you. I, I thought you said the wells. That's yeah, McMaster's got. McMaster has this was. North Dakota accent that I find <laughs> yeah. it's impenetrable at times. So. Yeah. No, it, if it's the well, I would say Ulmo. Yes. Jesus. Wow. Right. He's good. All right. I might. I might have him here. Here you go, Dave Markell. How many hit points does Tom Bombadil have? <laughs> this has got to be Battle for Middle Earth again, <laughs> and I don't have a freaking clue. Fifteen hundred. Nope. Twelve hundred. You were close. Uh, Pretty close, pretty close. <laughs> Two points for me. Over to you, Jason McMaster. <clears throat> what caused the first light to be seen after the destruction of the trees by Melkor and Ungoliant? <laughs> McMaster, hold on, hold on. I just want McMaster to say that question again because <laughs> I, I just enjoyed hearing him wrestle with those words. So, McMaster, let's have that one uh, more time. All right. What caused the first light to be seen after the destruction of the trees by Melkor and Ungoliant? <laughs> The answer to that great question would be sparks from the hooves of Nahar, the horse of Aromi. Jesus. Wow. Christ. I, I had no idea that what we were messing with, McMaster. I kind of feel like I, I kind of feel like, like Gollum when he first put on the ring. Like, holy cats, this is too much power. I'm I'm blown away. All right. Uh, okay, here you go. Dave Markell, what level is my main character? <laughs> I'm trying to figure out what the level cap is in Lord of the Rings, but then I know you bounce from MMO to MMO, so I bet you haven't capped out. I'm going to say 65. Oh, 56. You got both digits right. You just got them in the wrong order, and that it, means it was a shutout, and I have uh, won zero. Well, I gotta say, I like Jason McMaster's yeah. questions a lot more because they were actually about the works of Tolkien, <laughs> not about games based on the works of Tolkien. So good for you. <laughs> thank you, thank you. I, I was trying to be kind and uh, actually ask real questions. You know, McMaster, you could consider that a moral victory. I might have won for real. Yours was a moral victory. <laughs> Uh, seriously, though, Dave Markell, why? Why are you? I'm kind of jealous. Why are you such a Tolkien geek, and how can I get to be like that? Well, it's a result of almost 40 years of reading his works. I was introduced to Tolkien in the fourth or fifth grade by my science teacher, who was uh, an ex-hippie, really into to Tolkien. He loaned the books to me. I immediately fell in love with them. The notion that there could be a fictional world with a rich backstory, a real history completely grabbed me and opened my horizons to fantasy, to science fiction, to turning me into the nerd I am today, in other words. And I never looked back. I kept rereading him uh, 
an, an average of once a year, every new release that came out, the Silmarillion, the Histories of Middle Earth, Lost Tales, you name it, I was all over it. Now, and, Dave Markell, where did you go to school that, that this happened, that this fella gave you, turned you onto Tolkien? Where was this? Uh, Virginia at the time. Oh, so jealous. Yeah. So guess what I got given when I was in high school? A copy of freaking Atlas Shrugged. That's what I got. <laughs> 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 I know, I got so ripped off. <laughs> this was elementary school for me, so I don't think they'd give that out to fifth graders. Well, mine was third grade. No. Yeah. <laughs> it was actually... It was, it was actually Time, right? <laughs> Time to learn how the world works. <laughs> I know it was high school. I, yeah, I was given a copy of freaking Atlas Shrugged, and you were well on your way to your, what, fifth, sixth year of reading Tolkien. All right. Uh so, uh, do you play any uh, Lord? Of, so, you, you, did you fiddle with Lord of the Rings Online? Yeah, actually, I was I was really into Lotro for about two years, and I I quit after a whole bunch of of guild drama. I became, through no desire of my own, one of the main officers of, of our guild, simply because I hated drama and was always trying to diffuse it and be the peacemaker. So, of course, they gave me a lot of authority. I did everything I could in that regard, but it wasn't enough. Our, our guild was drama-prone from the beginning, shall we say. And then... They didn't add a lot of rating content to the game, and people who wanted to focus more on rating moved on to new games like World of Conan or went back to WoW or whatever. And now, I was I was just sick of all the all the drama and and conflicts, and I just drifted away from the game. Have you looked at it since it's gone free to play? I have not. Okay. Uh, I also have to make another confession, uh, McMaster. You also won a moral victory because um, I might have been wrong about the number of hit points Tom Bombadil has. Oh, now that's just sad. Well, here's the deal. <laughs> I, I tried to find out. I tried to do research on this, but I'm just, I, I'm, by the way, I'm so mad I could just spit. Um, Electronic Arts, Battle for Middle-Earth 2 is, I feel, one of the finest real-time strategy games ever made, and it's certainly some of the best work that the folks at Electronic Arts LA, that their, their RTS studio, has done. But they've all but abandoned that game, and it just drives me crazy. Uh, there's no online support for it anymore. They shut it down, apparently, because they don't have the rights for it or what, whatever, blah, blah, blah. As a, as a gamer, I couldn't care less why it's shut down. It just... It just really annoys me that you can't play it online. Uh, their freaking CDs routinely stop working with my disk drive, so I can't fire it up. They've got this insidious copy protection, so I can't just download a crack to get around the screwed-up CDs. So whereas I used to routinely play three versus three games of Battle for Middle-Earth 2 with my friends, it's basically it only works on like two of my computers, and I can't reinstall it. And, and, and you can't – it's not something you can buy from Origin, their horrible online service. So I just feel like they've just – let uh, this fantastic real-time strategy game atrophy. So I promise I tried to find out exactly how many uh, hit points Tom Bombadil had. I don't think it's 1,500, so uh, I'm pretty sure you didn't get it right, but I can't say for sure. Well, you know, uh, we should talk to Scott Kevill, the server master. No, it works <laughs> fine. On So Scott Kevill runs a service called Game Ranger, and uh, Battle for Middle-Earth 2 runs fine, assuming you can boot it up on your computer, which I often can't, but it runs fine over Game Ranger. Uh, oh, he, well, nice. Yeah, he does a great job of providing a home for orphaned games, particularly orphaned real-time strategy games, and particularly the ones that EA can't be arsed to keep up hmm. with. So. Yeah, the the whole topic of abandonware is a fascinating one. It's interesting that somebody's come to the rescue there. 
Well, it's you know, there's a there's a niche for that, and apparently there is. Scott's been very successful with certain games, and he's built up a great community around games that have just been orphaned and. Yeah. So, uh, all right. So, uh, I still consider myself the winner, but McMaster, on a couple accounts, you are the moral winner of the Stump Dave Markell contest. Oh, well. So, let's then talk games in earnest. Uh, Dave Markell, in addition to wanting to uh, pick your brain about a little Lord of the Rings, we want to know what your news of the week and your game of the week are. So uh, before you go, we'll let you go last. McMaster, let's start with you in a new story of the week. What do you have for us? New story of the week. All right. I have the new story of the fighting game community and sexual harassment and Capcom together Good. at last. This, sound, this sounds juicy. Oh, it's pretty juicy. Um yeah, recently, <clears throat> and this is actually on, uh, uh, I'll give it to him, uh, Destructoid, Jim Sterling wrote a pretty good article here, um, about there was a, a character, not a character, but there's this game show that Capcom is putting on, uh, I, I'm assuming you watch it online, uh, where Teams play Street Fighter versus Tekken matches to see who's the best because uh, they're promoting their new Street Fighter cross Tekken game. So, on this game show, there are two females, uh, one on either team, and mostly it's male, though. And on the Tekken team, uh, the player Miranda uh, Super Yan uh, has a, a P- Pagosti. I don't know how to pronounce her last name. I apologize, Miranda. But uh, she uh, she takes a lot of abuse, basically, from the team leader. And there's quite a bit of like recordings of stuff like, hey, what's your bra size? And stuff like that. Uh, yeah, being said during matches. Pathetic. And uh, yeah, she uh, the other day caused a big stir because she basically just kind of walked her character into the other player until she got disqualified so she could leave. Because it had gotten to be too much, and uh, and then at that point, some of the news sites picked it up, and then Capcom stepped in and said they didn't, you know, approve of the conduct. But uh, as far as I, I know, at this point, not nothing's really been done to the guy, you know. Uh, and the person's name, the main offender, is uh, uh, he has kind of a strange name too. Um, well, it's, so it sounds like uh, the news of the week for you, McMaster, is that video gamers, especially guys who play fighting games, are juvenile. Well, right, right. Uh, and the point, what what really kills me about it is that after uh, after all this, um, they started. Uh, they you know they asked the guy for comment, uh, and uh, he. His rebuttal is that if you take the sexism and like just the incredible like sexual harassment out of the fighting game community, that it, it changes it. Uh, so that it, it would change it for the worse. Oh, you mean if if they couldn't be like sexist and juvenile, the fighting game community would be changed for the worse? Right. How <laughs> that, that exactly was his, would that be the case? I know it's insane, but it's like, yeah, that was his. Uh, that was his rebuttal. And there's like all these, you know, th- these examples. Like, uh, there's a transcription on a giant bomb of uh, some of the things. Uh, 
that uh, were, were said during the interviews, uh, and they're <laughs> they're just really bizarre. Like uh, during one fighting game tournament, uh, every time this female character would get hit, this guy people would shout uh, "bitch." And then when she got knocked out, they're like, uh, the guy shouts, rape the bitch and stuff, and this is acceptable. And the guy replies with, look, man, what is unacceptable about that? There's nothing unacceptable about that. These are people. We're in America, man. This isn't North Korea. We can say what we want. People get emotional. <laughs> hey, that's great. He's playing the First Amendment card. That's lovely. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, it's, it's hilarious. Now, I, what, wait, real quick, McMaster. So was this an officially sanctioned event? Tell me exactly what yes. the venue was where this happened. It's a Capcom event. Uh, it's called uh, Street Fighter, Promoting Street Fighter X Tekken. It's a, I believe it's Twitch.tv. Uh, is what it's being broadcast on, and uh, it's a tournaments where you know, people play against each other. Uh, like, you know that, so. that's that's surprising to me because I've been to a couple of Capcom press events, and they hired a fella from the community named I want to say Seth something, uh, but he's a he's a big PR fella for their fighting games. And to just talk to him, you would think that these guys are all professional and courteous and have great sportsmanship. Uh, he's he's an older, I say older. I mean, he, you know, he's not fifteen. Uh, right. And, and but I guess that's why they hire someone like him to be their their community right. manager is because he's a best case example of the standards they want to set. Uh, right. And this guy's name is um, uh, Ares Baktanians. Wait, when you say this guy's name, are you talking about the fellow who's making these sort of unconscionable comments? Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. He's the one that's like defending the the, the way of life and uh, saying basically that if you were to change any part of it, that uh, it would make uh, it wouldn't be the fighting game community anymore. Now, can't you? I don't know much about real sports, but in real sports, if you have some like idiot quarterback saying stupid things, can't he get like like fined or? You know, they make him leave the club or whatever. Like, aren't there repercussions in real world sports when guys are totally sure? Directs? Absolutely, sure. Yeah, Just if like the trash talk gets out of hand, uh, you can get you can get penalized, especially for refs involved. Okay, well, you know what? Hopefully, Capcom will rise to the occasion and uh, do a little cyber sports. Uh, you, you know, make make it respectable and have well, some. Jason, I gotta ask before this became public, one would assume that an editor had to go through this footage and approve it. Sure, yeah, and that's the thing, is like, this is being broadcast with the audio comments, and it, it gets to a point where, at one point he says, you know, there, there's all sorts of uh, harassing comments in the feed watching the game, and it, it, like from, you know, text comments from random people in the chat room. And it's like, but that, that's not really the same thing. You know, you're not sitting there looking someone in the face. You, you kind of learn to expect that from the Internet, because not having a face to look at makes you incredibly uh, gutsy. Anonymity encourages all kinds of things, yes, definitely. So, But this guy is sitting there behind this person in earshot saying these things, hmm. and it's being recorded. I mean, it's being filmed, and of course that has audio, and I mean, there's like a 15 or 20 minute clip that people have put together of like just horrible things that were said during it. Um, hmm. And so, uh, yeah, I'll leave you with this. This is, this is a great quote from our friend Bakhtanians. You uh, see, uh, uh, he's responding to a question, which is, can I get my street fighter without sexual harassment? He says, Bogdanians replies, you can't. You can't because they're one and the same thing. 
this is a community that's, you know, 15 or 20 years old, and the sexual harassment is part of a culture. And if you remove that from the fighting game community, it's not the fighting game community, it's StarCraft. There's nothing wrong with StarCraft if you enjoy it, and there's nothing wrong with anything about esports. But why would you want just one flavor of ice cream, you know? There's esports for people who like esports, and there's fighting games for people who like spicy food and like to have fun. There's no reason to turn them into the same thing, you know? So, uh, yeah. Right. Well, so in his mind... Sorry, Tom, go ahead. Well, I just want to... Well, go ahead, and then I'll have a concluding comment. I was just going to say, so in his mind, fighting games and misogyny are so inexplicably intertwined that you cannot remove the one from the other. Exactly. Yeah. Is, uh, I would just say that... Pathetic. And I would just say, though, that this if, if you play many fighting games and if you play things like, uh, what's her name, Ivy from Soul Calibur, uh, part of what's going on here is fighting games are now lying in the bed they have made. So mm-hmm. sounds uh, sounds pretty despicable, and hopefully Capcom will have some kind of reaction to it. But uh, I'm hardly surprised to see that uh, because how the games are often designed to appeal to that level of maturity, I think. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's yeah. no doubt. All right, so uh, McMaster, way to bring the room down. You know me, I always pick the, uh, <laughs> the really cheery news. Well, I have some good news that, uh, this is me, I have some good news, but it's really obscure news. So uh, there's an iPhone game called Starbase Orion, uh, and I don't know how they got away with this. And I say they, I think it's just a small developer, maybe one fella. Uh, but it's basically an iPhone port of Master of Orion, Oh. The, the classic turn-based sci-fi strategy game. One of my favorites, yeah. Well, yeah. If, if you like it, now you can pretty much get most of the experience, uh, and it's so many elements of Starbase Orion are just a 1-1 correlation with Master of Orion. Uh, you can get the experience on the iPhone, and the news, uh, the game came out, I think, at some point last year, but the news is just this week, uh, the developer released a, a pretty hefty patch uh, which added a lot to what was already a pretty full-featured game. Uh, now, I just want to say quickly, as a disclaimer, you do get the almost full Master of Orion experience, but what's missing, and this is a pretty crucial ingredient to Master of Orion, is diplomacy. Uh, you know, everybody, all the aliens you meet, uh, everybody else who's playing, you are hostile. You know, there's none of that great diplomacy that Master of Orion and Civ, that, that's a hallmark of those games. So given that you're constantly fighting you're still getting pretty much the same kind of stuff you get in Master of Orion with exploration and colony management, some this really great intricate ship design system, uh, and really cool tactical combat. Now, what the latest patch does is it lets you play on larger maps. Uh, you used to only be able to have four players on a map. Now you can have eight. Uh, you can add AI players to multiplayer games. Uh, and by the way, it does support asynchronous multiplayer over over your iPhone. You know, you can each submit your turn. All right, I'm getting it now. (laughs) Pretty awesome. And I would encourage people, there's a thread on quarter to three where we are arranging matches. So if you do pick up Starbase Orion, jump into the thread, post your Game Center name. You know, it works through Game Center, uh, Apple's little gaming networking thing. uh, And we'll we'll set you up in a multiplayer game. Uh, I predict that I will be getting beaten by Tom Chick very shortly. Well, you know what? I'm already in a game, so you'll be queued up with other people. And I'm not good at Uh-oh. it. I've only tried a few games. Um, no, you don't have one at a time. Huh? That's a bummer. Well, I guess you could have multiple at a time. You know, the, the turns are pretty quick, but I want to make sure everyone gets into a game. So we'll see who shows up. We'll, we'll, we'll cycle people into games. Uh, the patch also adds uh, 
what what might be considered DLC for other games in that you get new technologies. They mainly buff this uh, espionage sub-game that you have where you can spy on and sabotage the other players. Uh, it adds new ship systems, uh, and there are a bunch of supposed AI improvements. Uh, there are more options in combat for tactics like specifically targeting other ships or escorting your friendly ships, or, and this is entirely new, you can retreat. Uh, I used to, it used to be the situation where some of the systems that you would explore with your scout, you would come there and there would be a big old space monster. And that's vintage stuff from Master mm-hmm. of Orion, is these rich systems are defended by space amoebas and stuff like that. But it used <laughs> yeah. to be your, your scout would show up and there would be a space amoeba and you would tell it evade, you know, run away from that thing. So every single turn, because it couldn't retreat, it would just be basically, it was like Keystone Cops, it would be running away around on the map while a space amoeba chased it. And every single freaking turn, you would get a report. Uh, hey, there's this battle that happened, do you want to watch it? And you're basically watching your scout eternally running from a space amoeba with nothing to do about it. So now you can just retreat. Uh, Tom, it sounds like a good game, but I have a, a question for you. You've sir. alluded to this. The intellectual property angle here is an interesting one because mm-hmm. microprose still kind of exists in some sense or another, and I know Master of Orion has not been you know, totally relegated to the abandonware heap. So how are how is the developer of this iPhone game not on the legal radar? Uh, I'm pretty sure you cannot copyright gameplay mechanics like isn't that isn't that the situation yeah basically but it sounds like it is so close to being an actual port of the game as opposed to just stealing some of the mechanics that i'm surprised they got away from it yeah well you know it's been out for a while and i I certainly like i recently bought master of orion 2 on good old games you know it's Mm -hmm. still in one it comes in a bundle so you're you're right it's not abandoned where there's still people selling it but Nobody's, as far as I know, has tried to shut this fella down. And I wish I could think of the name of the developer. I can't offhand. Uh, but so far, you know, it's it's been up and running, and he hasn't said, "Hey, I got a cease and desist. You guys can't play this anymore." So whatever's going on there, he seems to be in the clear. Um, Camara Software. Yes, thank you, McMaster. All right, so that was my news story of the week. The new patch for uh, Master of Orion for the iPhone, aka Starbase Orion. That leaves us with Dave Markell. Dave Markell, what Lord of the Rings-related news story have you chosen as your news story of the week? I'm sorry to disappoint you, Tom. I have nothing Lord of the Rings-related for my news story. Rats. Oh, well. Okay, well, what non-Lord of the Rings-related news do you have for us? Well, I picked news related to one of my most anticipated games of 2012, Mass Effect 3. And that news is the From Ashes uh, launch day DLC. I assume you've heard about this. Uh, is this the Prothean? Protean? Yes, it is. Thing, right. Tell, tell us what's going on, because I know, I know just sketchy information. Okay, well, uh, the Protheans are the central mystery in the Mass Effect series. In, in the first game, and there are spoilers here, folks, if you haven't played Mass Effect 1 and 2, and you should, but spoiler warning delivered. Anyway, in the first game, when Commander Shepard touches a Prothean artifact, it triggers all kinds of weird visions that basically drive the plot of the entire first game. You eventually find out that the Protheans were destroyed by the Reapers and that they were trying to prevent the Reapers from coming back yet again, kind of short-circuiting their next conquest down the road, which is the events that are taking place in in Mass Effect. In Mass Effect 2, you find out that the main enemies, the Collectors, are some warped 
uh, re- remnants of the Protheans that were altered by the Reapers into the main enemies of the game. So the Protheans are integral to the Mass Effect series. And now we find out that the Launch Day DLC, which you have to pay for in Mass Effect 3, is going to be a Prothean crew member and a Prothean-oriented mission. And this has led to a tremendous amount of controversy. As you might (laughs) expect, fans of the series say a Prothean crew member and a Prothean-oriented quest line are so integral to the experience that it should be a part of the release game, not something that you have to pay extra for. Mm -hmm. And they view it as a way to gouge the consumer big time, especially since this isn't an add-on that's coming months down the road. It's being released in the collector's edition, and then people who buy the ordinary edition will have the option to pay extra for it. And the forums have just exploded. Pretty much every gaming website has posted an article on this, and it brings up the whole issue of launch day DLC and charging for launch day DLC, something that I personally very much dislike. Now, uh, am I mistaken in that didn't someone say that this DLC questline was done by a different developer, or am I thinking of something else? No, they said it was done by a different team Team. after the main game had already been finalized and blah, blah, blah. But nonetheless, it's being released at exactly the same time as the main game. And you would assume that these resources could have been otherwise deployed to work on Mass Effect 3 proper, or that this could have been incorporated into the release. Uh, their, their arguments ring a little false to me, to be honest. They really do. Uh, what, Real quick, what does a Prothean look like? Do we know? Not exactly. You get only quick, uh, like, you know, very fast flashes of them in the first game. And in the second game, while you get to fight the collectors a lot, they're seriously warped, so you don't know exactly what they look like either. The, the general speculation is that they're they're somewhat like a Lovecraftian Cthulhu in, in terms of their head, that they have basically an octopus tentacular head. Their bodies, not so sure. Uh, the collectors looked a little... Perhaps insectival, but it, it's not a it's not a sure thing at this point. Maybe those who have played the game will know, but I don't. Not so yet. Are there no there are no screenshots of this Proteus Pro, Proteus Prothean crew member. No, there are, but I've avoided looking at them, so ah, I can't okay. really tell you. So okay. sorry. Uh, it makes me wonder, like, what kind of skill set the Prothean team member has. Like, what, yeah, good question. Is he a biotic no fellow? Or, okay. Uh, you know, part of me, uh, Dave Mar- Markell, makes me, uh, you know, I agree with you, and I'm like, this is just horrible that they do this. But then part of me is so resigned to this. I mean, gamers have lost. <laughs> they had the chance to fight this whole DLC movement, and it's a battle they have lost. And I partly blame them. Publishers are going to push it as hard as they can. EA is a worst-case offender as far as, like, milking stuff with DLC, and the opportunity to turn that back is over. I mean, it's a it's a done deal. We can expect this from here on out, and people are just going to eat it up. It's just part of the business model that I resent, but I'm resigned to. Well, I don't mind yeah, DLC it's... that takes the place of expansion packs. Sorry, Jason, I'll stop in just a second. I used to oh, love no. expansion packs all the way back into, say, the, the 80s, where they came out with expansion packs for Wing Commander or whatever, and I just ate those things up. Okay. 
or, or 90s, sorry. And, and DLC that serves as an expansion pack, I am 100% on board with. But launch day DLC that you have to pay for, I'm 100% opposed to. The problem is, I'm so into the Mass Effect story, and I so want to find out what's going on with this Perthian character, that I am probably going to sacrifice my principles on the altar of expediency and desire and buy the damn thing. And you, Dave Markell, are part of the problem. <laughs> I am. I know. I'm being a total hypocrite here. I hate myself for it, and that's why I'm bringing it up as my new story of the week. All right, as long as you do it with some degree of self-loathing, I can accept that. <laughs> well, thank you, Tom. I feel so much better now. Uh, you know, and it's also I, like EA is, is and not just EA, but plenty of companies now uh, do this whole like online pass activation thing, or they, you know, there's a code yeah. to to combat rental stuff. But this sounds like a step beyond that in that it's just the collector's edition. It's not something that you get if you just buy the normal edition, right? Right. What does the collector's edition include and in cost? Do we know? The collector's edition costs $20 more than the real game, and it includes the usual generic art stuff and, you know, making of stuff and soundtrack stuff. But it also includes this extra character and extra mission. And it will be available to the poor masses like me who didn't pre-order the collector edition, but you'll have to pay another 10 bucks for it. Now, this is different from Mass Effect 2. Mass Effect 2 had launch day DLC 2, but it was free. It was the Zaid character, I believe, oh, and yeah, his yeah. missions. Yeah, and that was that was fine. It was you know that was way... their anti-rental. Exactly, as an anti-rental tool, I thought that was excellent. You had to sign up for their service using a one-time passcode that people who you know bought the used game would never be able to do. I think right. that's great. I'm totally on board with that. What I'm not on board with is charging for launch day content. Right, uh, McMaster, does this rub you the wrong way? Are you okay? Are you resigned to it like me? Uh, you know, this one's a little ridiculous, but yeah, I mean, that's it's been coming for a while. You know what? Let me then segue into my game of the week, which actually uh, applies to this. So my game of the week, I, I unfortunately will not be on the podcast next week because I'll be at uh, GDC. So uh, I'm just going to go ahead and do this game of the week before the week the game comes out. So my game of the week is actually Mass Effect 3, hmm. uh, which I have played through. And I don't know what they're going to do with the Prothean character, but I don't... Uh, it's a little. I'm a little surprised to hear that because I didn't feel like there were any gaps where you could fit such a huge plot element. Like it seems like a huge big deal to the plot. And having played the game, I don't really see a Prothean character-sized hole <laughs> in, in what I experienced. Hmm. Uh, so uh, that is my game of the week. Is Mass Effect Three, and I'm choosing it as my game of the week because. I was not a fan of Mass Effect 2. Mass Effect 1, I was kind of, eh, I could take it or leave it. It's kind of clunky. Let's see what they do next time. Then in Mass Effect 2, I felt like they streamlined out all the interesting, cool RPG stuff. I agree. And and, and what you ended up with was a shooter, which I didn't even feel was very good. And I was never a huge, big fan of the story stuff. I didn't like the whole, hey, we're getting the band together structure of Mass Effect 2. Um, I like the ending, even though I sucked at it and got everyone killed. Um, but for the most part, I did not like Mass Effect 2 at all. So, I am, uh, I, I'm a little surprised at how much I really like Mass Effect 3. Uh, and I want to give a couple of reasons for it. It's, it's still, reviews are still embargoed, so I, I can't talk too many specifics. Uh, but I just want to explain why I, as a guy who didn't like Mass Effect 2, really liked Mass Effect 3. 
Uh, this is spoiler free, so don't feel like you need to fast forward. I, I don't think anything that I'm going to say is going to ruin impact the experience in any way. Uh, one of the things I didn't like in Mass Effect 2 was that all the levels felt like just space dungeons. You go from point A to point B, that's the mission, you're done. Uh, there's some of that in Mass Effect 3, but for the most part, they do a really good job of making the space dungeons more spectacular, less linear, hmm. uh, the, the, the areas are a lot wider, uh, and the basic gunplay, I feel, is just so much better in Mass Effect 3. Now, there's been a demo available, so plenty of people, I think, have been able to get their hands on it, uh, but I really like how Mass Effect 3 plays as a shooter above and beyond Mass Effect 2, and I especially like where the shooting takes place. The level design is really, really good in Mass Effect 3, for the most part. Uh, Go ahead. I I have a couple questions for you, Tom, and again, of course, we've got to avoid spoilers, but uh, you mentioned that you didn't like 2, and one reason you didn't like it is it removed all the the deeper RPG elements from 1, and that's a comment I agree with 100%. My my first question for you is, are they back in 3? Oh, yeah. They're back and they're much better. Like I hated the silly little hacking things to get credits from the levels. Uh, I hated the planetary scanning uh, and what you did with your resources. Like it would just give you these sort of vague upgrades you could buy, and I hated how vague that was. It didn't feel like a developed RPG system. Like that whole the whole way an RPG system works is you decide where you invest your resources. You know what am I going to buy? What am I going to equip? What things am I going to use? What upgrades am I going to get? They had a little of that with the skills, but it seemed like they wanted to streamline a lot of that out of Mass Effect Two. Oh, they did. They had way more skills in Mass Effect One. Yeah. Yeah, and and now it's not Mass Effect One level. Like Mass Effect Three is still. The, the primary means of interacting with the world are as a shooter, but I feel that they've restored a lot of the RPG choices. Like there's a lot more RPG in Mass Effect 3. But what it ultimately comes down to is I feel Mass Effect 3 is a much better balance between a shooter and an RPG than Mass Effect 2 was. Uh, so I was really happy with you know how they found their footing there. And in fact, just as an overall design, you know, the, the combination of a shooter and an RPG. Mass Effect 3 really feels like one of the most confident, sure-footed games that Bioware has done since, hmm. I think, Knights of the Old Republic. Uh, I, I really get the sense that, okay, you know what? These guys have finally settled on a good gameplay formula. You know, after years of doing, you know, pushing you through these little boxes in Dragon Age or Jade Empire or the original Mass Effect... I feel like, you know what, they finally figured out a way to combine an RPG and a shooter and, and make it feel like a solid, coherent design. Uh, so that really worked for me. And, of course, and here again, I don't want to talk spoilers, but I can't wait to talk spoilers because <laughs> I really liked the story. Uh, you know, of course the stakes are higher. Everybody knows that at this point. It's none of this, like, mopey, oh, i got to help crew member A with his problem, and then i got to deal with crew member B, you know, all that for the most part, like, that's gone. Like, now everything is, like, huge operatic stakes, and and I love what they've done with that. Even as someone who doesn't follow the storyline that closely, I I liked this storyline. I liked what was happening. I felt like I wasn't being shut out by a bunch of fan service stuff. You know, if you were to mention names to me, a lot of them I've forgotten, but I know, you know, what the deal is with Garrus and Morden. You know, they, they spell that out very well. It's in very clear terms. I know the stakes... Uh, and I even am aware that they resolve a lot of really cool, long-standing plot arcs 
that that uh, that have gone through both of the two previous games. I really respect how, and I think fans are just going to love how some of these plot arcs are resolved and addressed. Awesome. Um, I can't Mass Effect play, 3 but... has one of the most bizarre demos I've ever played. Yeah, so about. what is the demo? It, it's the Is it the tutorial <clears throat> level? Well, I mean, I guess I, I don't want to say bizarre. It's just kind of... Well, yeah, all right. I didn't actually play through the entire thing. I saw enough, but you you, you start off at the yeah at the beginning where you're Shep or whatever, and you're going in to see the council, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and you've been blah blah. You you're, you're no longer a soldier. Right. But so anyway. that's that's the exposition, and then the tutorial about like how to move and shoot and stuff. Right, right. You run yeah. around with old Cap there, and uh, yeah, so. You go through that bit, and then you take off, and they do the bit from, like, the E3 demos with a kid in the vent, you know, that, that right, thing, right. The, uh, that whole helicopter part. But, like, then I, I think the demo's over, and so I'm sitting there, and I'm like, oh, it's all right. Then all of a sudden, it's, like, sometime later in the game, and then it just, like, drops you into, like, a different situation. Right. Which, right. which I thought was kind of weird. That I mean, I understand that they're trying to show, like, different bits, but... It's kind of a weird way to put it together. Well, I think it's important to let you see, because there's no real meaningful gameplay in that first bit you're talking about. So I think they just want to, like I that's like I said, that's the tutorial and exposition. Uh, so I think they want to also show you a little bit of the gameplay, uh, some of the level design. If I'm not mistaken, do you, do you know what you do on that? You know what, let's not say, because that might be a spoiler for people who avoided the demo. It'll be but, a spoiler <laughs> for me, because I avoided the demo. Okay, okay. Uh, well, I'm so, trying not to spoil then, but uh, yeah, I, I know what you're going to ask or what mission it was or whatever it drops you into. Yeah. And I think I'll, if I'll tell mission, you later. Okay, well, if it's the mission I'm thinking of, like there were some cool. They mix it up. Right? It's never. Well, I say never. It's rarely. Hey, go from point A to point B. Well, the reason I actually even thought of it is that uh, you mentioned uh, overlying story arcs of yep. the series, and that's what made me think Absolutely. of it. That tells you. So. And it doesn't stop there, by the way, McMaster. I mean, that that thing keeps getting addressed and comes to this really oh. cool conclusion that I want to talk to people about. I mean, yeah. I, I played this a while ago, and I've just been bursting wanting to tell people, A, you know what, I like this, and B, let's talk story. Uh, because, good Lord, some cool stuff happens, and, and I hope it's okay to say this, but I love the ending, and I cannot wait until I can talk about it with people, because it's one of those things where I'm like, did you see that? What do you think? You know, what do you think? Well, here's what I think. Uh, well, you know, Tom, that ties into the second question I had, if, uh-huh. if, if you'll let me say it. Uh, sure. For a moment, or rather, uh, the first game, Mass Effect, I thought had the most cinematic ending in gaming history in terms of just being, as you said earlier, operatic. It yep. was really, really uh, high concept, high action. It, it was like the climax to the best science fiction film you've ever seen. Sure. You, know, you, you have the decision to save or destroy the council. You have the redemption or or slaughter of Saren. You know, you, you either you kill him or he suicides. Sovereign takes over his body. You know, Joker's piloting the Normandy in and out of danger. It was just phenomenal. I yep. loved it. It's my all-time favorite game ending. How does Mass Effect 3 compare to that? Uh, I, I don't want to say too much, but I, I, again, I just think as a fan of Mass Effect, the series, Dave, you're just going to be really happy with the ending of Mass Effect 3. I, I can't wait. I, and I say that, I think, I mean, I can also imagine people who will be angry or upset or unhappy with it. Uh, so, I, you know what, I'll just say that it's it's worth getting to. 
cool. even if you hate it, <laughs> you, you know. Uh, I just think they they make a really brave choice that I applaud, and and I know people are thinking, oh, I bet I know what Tom's talking about, and I guarantee you, you don't. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I I just can't wait to talk more about it. Uh, I will be playing through it again. Like I want to in my save for Mass Effect Two, I got everyone killed, and I want to see how that impacts the storyline and what they do with with what I feel are some very challenging situations I set up for them in terms of telling the story that they want to tell in Mass Effect 3. Are you going to get it on 360? I will be playing on 360 because the build I played didn't have any of the online functionality. And they are doing this funky thing where you can play multiplayer games and that'll tie into this... Uh, this galaxy at war kind of thing. You know, this overall war effort, uh, none of that was in the build I played, but this overall war effort will be will be something that you can build kind of as a strategic layer, and you can feed into that with the multiplayer co-op, which I've only played at a press event. But, you know, you and me, McMaster, we love our horde mode. Uh, yes. So I will be getting it on the 360, and I look forward All to right. it coming out, and I look forward to, to playing with some of you folks because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play through it again. I, I enjoyed it that much. Yeah, I'll be on 360 as well, just because that's where my saves for the previous games are, and I want to continue that story. You know what? It really is a game. You can't really jump platforms, can you? Like, you, no. have, you have to stick with where your saved game is. Although but. I've heard there are online websites that try to duplicate every possible choice right. with every possible subplot, and you can load that save in. But, you know, I don't want to take that chance. I want to see how everything works out for me. Right. Oh, and if you hear my dog, she's barking in the background. Sorry. That's okay. Tell her we said hi. My, uh, <laughs> I will. My, my cat might have something to say about that soon. So, All right, so my game of the week, uh, because I won't be able to, to mention it next week, is Mass Effect 3. Uh, I'm a big fan, uh, and I look forward to playing with you guys when it comes out. So there we go. I've hogged the first spot. Let's turn it over to Jason McMaster. What is your game of the week if it's not Tiddlywinks? Uh, I know it's. You would think it would be, but it's uh, no. Um, my game of the week uh, was going to be Minecraft, but we talk about Minecraft an awful lot. Though, just quick point: uh, the new patch comes out tomorrow, which I've been messing around with because they released a snapshot of it today, and uh, it adds jungles and tameable ocelots and cats and all sorts of stuff. Wait a minute, so, tameable cat? Now I know for a fact you cannot tame a cat. Well, I mean, yeah, that's why it's a video game. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it, it adds a, a jungle and stuff, a biome, which is really cool looking. I uh, played around with it some. We've seen some cats, but have not tamed them because they're cats and uh, they're finicky. But uh, my game of the week actually is because there's a tournament on, and it is Pinball uh, FX2. Hmm. Oh, what's the new tournament table? Thor. Oh, God, whatever. <laughs> no, yeah. Oh, no. See, see. There you go. No, well, but also, say, go Epic Quest. You know, Epic Quest is also another great talking point. Well, well, that's the thing is Thor introduces this cool combat mechanic where you yep. know you're fighting a guy and you make certain shots to get a hit, and if you miss, he'll hit you. And I feel like the Epic Quest, the, the fundamental uh, gameplay gimmick in Epic Quest, is this combat mechanic, but much more fleshed out than it was in Thor. Uh, and plus, I just the whole like dudes in tight stuff is just silly to me. That's just not my bag. So no, I mean Thor is uh, no. Don't get me wrong. Most of the actual superhero tables, I'm, I'm not a, like a fan of the characters they're based on. I think I probably come closest to Iron Man or Blade, maybe. But right, uh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, the the whole thing with Thor is that uh, I could care less about it. It the the character God and the voice acting is so ridiculous. After a while, you know, like it's been. 
been many years since I, Odin, built the destroyer armor. It's like, are you serious? Like, you need to throw your name in there? I, you know, Odin. Uh, but uh, the voice is just, uh, they drive me nuts. But the table itself uh, can be a lot of fun. Uh, you know what? It has, and I will say it is pretty. Like, I, it's a yeah. beautiful table. Yeah. Right, like, yeah, and that's one thing I have a problem with some of the superhero tables is, like, good God, are they horrific looking like, uh, on occasion. Uh, but, yeah, the uh, it's a nice-looking table, uh, and the play is, is pretty fast. You can actually get a lot of points really quick. Uh, my average if on a bad game is around 35 to 50 million at this point, and it's... Uh, my score now, unfortunately, is only like 72 million. Of course, Sarah beat the living bejesus out of me yesterday with like 123 million. But uh, what's she gonna do? And uh, yeah, the, that tournament's going on. But you mentioned Epic Quest, mm-hmm. which is a favorite of mine, and I know you've written a bit about it on the front page. But we haven't really talked a ton about it on the podcast, I don't mm-hmm. believe. Um, Epic Quest is a uh, really cool. Uh, Dave, do you play pinball at all? Yeah, you can probably tell by my silence that I don't play virtual pinball. I enjoy the real thing, but I've never gotten into into gaming versions, PC gaming or, or console gaming versions of pinball very much at all. Now, Dave, I don't know if you know this, but real pinball is dead. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, <laughs> I do know this. Uh, yeah, in fact, real pinball died a few days ago. <laughs> oh, that's right. That's oh, McMaster. Yeah. Once again, way to bring the room down. <laughs> you know, that was almost my news of the week, but the sexual harassment story was so ridiculous. Uh, tell I us could. real quick what, what you're talking about. What happened a few days ago? Uh, not the inventor per se, but the modernizer of uh, modern pinball passed away at the uh, age of 100, and I am trying to find his name uh, at this moment. I want to say Berenstein, or did I screw that up? Something like that. Uh, 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 oh, wait, 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 wait. Where is it? Is this it? S- Steve Kordick. I wasn't even close. <laughs> it looks, yeah. <laughs> what was I thinking? Yeah, Berenstein's the guy who created the Berenstein uh, yeah, Bears, the, the, and he passed away this week too. I uh, know it, it was the lady. It was the uh, lady, Jane, right? Yeah, or, or something. <laughs> well, you know, Whatever. I, I, a lot of people, I'm sure, confuse Berenstein Bears with pinball. It's a common mistake. <laughs> it really is. Yes, yes. Um, I try to read pinball to children all the time, but. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, so, yeah. McMaster, you're playing, uh, so uh, Epic Quest, is that working for you? Or are you finding it? I can see how some people who are really good at pinball, and I'm not, uh, might find it a little too easy and too grindy. Is that a, like, is that a you know, problem? I like it, but it is kind of too easy. I, I'll almost say it's like I scored, I don't know, I think I'm around $100 million on it now. I'm around $100 million on well, it now. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, it's just that you only have to hit like those couple of ramps, really. Right. You know, to beat uh, like to beat almost every monster. Now, I do like the table though; it's a lot of fun. I, I like the voice work. I like the design. It's a lot more playable than a lot of the other tables. Uh, but it does kind of get to a point where you just it, it feels like yeah, you're just kind of hitting like the shield and then the sword and the shield and the sword. Or uh, I actually like to clear out the forest is, is a good one too. That one's kind of easy if you can get into a, a kind of a groove with it um, i can never never to save my life get into the freaking dungeon do you have oh, no problem uh, 
Yeah, you know, and the thing is, I don't even care at this point. Uh, it's like shots like that just irritate me. So I just try to put them out of my head, and well, and like I maybe on luck on occasion I get into the freaking dungeon. Well, but one of the things like there there are very few tables that I like a like and b know well enough to really look at the overarching goal of the table. But the overarching right. goal of Epic Quest is to kill one instance of each of the monsters, and you can. Right. You can find monsters in the forest, in the Orcanium, that little uh, theater thing up there. Right. And, and there, are, there are at least a couple of monsters you can only find in the dungeon. So if you want to okay. either, if you want to quote unquote beat the table or do well, you have to be able to hit the dungeon. And I just, I don't, I can't do it. Uh, like that's one of those like crazy shots that I, it is beyond my capabilities at pinball. I think. Um, if I. If I'm think, uh, is this one I'm thinking of correctly? Yeah, it has the princess spinner at the bottom, where if you fill it up, you get multi. No, she's on. No, she's on the left. I love the little multi ball. The dungeon is one of these really hard to see holes on the 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 right side. Right. It's the far. It's also the one where you, yeah, you take potions. I think if you hit it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Combat. Right. Exactly. Right. Um, yeah, that's one of those shots that always made me nervous because it's always like you have to almost like gutter the ball. Yeah, it's, you've like, got to basically that, yeah. that little rounded part of the flipper where yeah. if you miss it by a millimeter of a second, the ball goes down the middle. Yeah, I just <laughs> I, I can hit that same shot on Thor for some reason. The one that gives you a uh, points boost is like Mjolnir's might or some stupid crap like that. Uh, but, hey, that's not then, stupid. That's right out of Norse mythology. It's the name of his hammer. Yeah, McMaster. Uh, you know what? I'm pretty sure that's wrong. I think it's the name of Master Chief's armor. Duh. Yeah, oh, come on. Yeah, well, probably that too. <laughs> hey, I have nothing to contribute about pinball, but I can tell you about Norse mythology and Tolkien. So, well, that, that'll be. We, yeah, we'll have a quiz for you on Norse mythology. <laughs> but you know that one of the best ways to get a lot of points on Epic Quest is that spinner with a princess on it. If you there's one uh, slot on it is called Add a Ball. Yep. Yeah, that is awesome, because you get the multi-ball, and if you hit that lane, it'll add it back if you've lost one, and you can just freaking go on forever. Well, now, I don't know if you know this, because I, I slogged through the awful table notes for that table for Epic Quest, but the, the, I think the main way to really get a high score, and I'm sure I could get $100 million if I wanted to. I just I just have other things to do. McMaster, yeah, so. I, I understand. You're a very busy guy. Very busy. But the, the way you get a high score is you level up a character, because that determines... Uh, the jackpot size for the multi-ball oh, mode. So the idea is you're playing, you're grinding, you're leveling up your character. Like the gimmick is your character is persistent from game to game, and I love that gimmick. But the trick, I think, to high scoring is get a high-level character and then get those high jackpots in the little princess multi-ball. Uh, yeah, I mean, that is that is a, a absolute part of it. I mean, one of the big things about it, uh, too, is that... You, I got a huge bonus on a game that I did really well on by getting all of the epic items. It gives you something like 10 million points. Well, you, you, you can repeatedly do that. Like Again, that's persistent from game to game, and every time you right. basically store up four epic items, you know, there's the light on the left side of the table that's purple when you get those items, right, right. You, get a, you get a big old point bonus. Yeah. All right, and uh, yeah, it's the, the, I don't know. The, the game has, a, like that table in particular has a lot of charm. Yeah, uh, I you know of course you you end up skipping a ton of it after a while, but you know the puppet theater and everything's pretty awesome, yeah. and uh, just the basic uh, comments. Uh, so they they've also this is kind of news, but Zen Studios, who makes Epic Quest, uh, I believe they announced that the PC version of of uh, Pinball FX2 is now available. 
Oh, really? On um, on Steam or something? No, it's some, uh, and I'm out of my element here, it's some Windows 8 thingy mabob. Oh. Uh, that thing. I, I don't know what's going on with Windows or Microsoft these days, but I just got an announcement from Zen Studios that basically the two things that caught my eye were Pinball FX2 and the word Windows. So it's either out or it's on the way. Uh, oh, and by, well, I can't say that. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I'm real excited for a table that I know that they're making that I can't say anything about. Uh, so, yeah, there you go. So, all right, McMaster, Pinball FX2, your game of the week. Good choice. Uh, We're huge fans of it on this podcast. Uh, Dave Markell, your game of the week is apparently not Crusader Kings 2. I demand you explain yourself. (laughs) Okay, well, I'll be glad to. It's not Crusader Kings 2 because of my history with Paradox Games. I know from forum comments that this may well be the most polished Paradox release in a long time. (laughs) It is. It really is. But typically, I avoid uh, any new Paradox strategy title for at least several patches, a mod, and maybe an an expansion or two before I start playing it. So that's why Crusader Kings 2 is not yet on my radar. And I, by the way, fully support that decision. As much as I love Crusader Kings 2, I just have some huge issues with it, and I've recently shelved it so that I can dive back into Victoria 2, which does have those requisite patches, mods, and add-on. Well, uh, isn't that interesting? Because my game of the week is the uh, House Divided expansion hey. for Victoria 2. <laughs> we couldn't have planned that better. It's uh, a complete coincidence. Tom and I did not coordinate this at all. But honestly, that is my game of the week. And I'm really, really enjoying it. All right. Well, tell, so first of all, tell folks, like why? what's the deal with Victoria 2? What makes you like that? Okay, well, Victoria 2 is set in the, say, the mid to early 1800s to the early 1900s. It's basically the era after Napoleon where Europe engages in the scramble for Africa, uh, takes over a bunch of nations in Southeast Asia, partially divvies up China, and modern technology at the same time explodes through the Industrial Revolution. You've got the American Civil War. You have all kinds of interesting things happening. Basically, modern society is coming into existence. So it's a great time period for a grand strategy game. Hmm. You can... You can do tech, you can do your economy, you can expand like crazy, you can engage in all sorts of warfare. There's, there's many different possibilities uh, for, for builders, for warmongers, for, for whatever type of player you happen to be if you get into strategy gaming. So it's a great, great setting for strategy games. Now, can I, uh, can I be so bold as to submit that you, sir, have buried the lead? I think uh, Victoria 2, above and beyond its setting, does something really, really bold uh, that I love that Paradox has taken this. And that's the way that it's driven, not by your usual, hey, this province makes this stuff and has this much taxation. Uh, the, the model behind Victoria and Victoria 2 is this, this really brave population-based model. Pops, yes, yeah. exactly. Uh, uh, the so pops, tell us a bit about that. Yeah, what, yeah how Pops it? are absolutely unique to Victoria, I, uh, the Victoria series, rather. I've never seen them modeled in any other strategy game. Basically, every province is filled with these little people called Pops, and they can be farmers or laborers or craftsmen, bureaucrats, aristocrats. You know, there's, there's eight or ten different Pop types, clergymen and so on. And those pops are your country. The farmers farm, the clergymen teach people how to read and help uh, suppress uh, popular revolts, Mm -hmm. the soldiers enlist in your army, and so on and so forth. 
And so you have to manage these pops pretty carefully. And in the initial release of Victoria 2, the pops and their demands were really screwed up. Like almost every Paradox game, it was pretty much unplayable out of the out of the box. The economy just did not work because the things that the pops needed were not at all balanced and the, the the entire world economy tended to shut down 20 or 30 years into the game. I'll just give one example of that. Uh, there's all kinds of goods in the game, you know, armaments, foods, fuels, all sorts of stuff. Let, let's talk about one of them, fertilizer. You would think fertilizer would be something that your farmer pops would need in order to produce food, right? Yeah. But there was no demand for fertilizer or very little demand from the farmer pops. Instead, it was used almost exclusively by the explosives factory as a raw material and explosives. And unless yes. your explosive factories are all manned by Timothy McVeigh, I don't think that's really a realistic use for fertilizer. Now, can so, I just defend that real quickly? Because I think, I think what they're getting at there is that farmers don't need to have fertilizer shipped to them. It's not a part of the commerce in the game, whereas explosives factories who need uh, you know nitrates or whatever, it's something that has to be moved directly to them. As far as like a commodity that gets traded, fertilizer doesn't matter to farmers because they've got cows pooing all over the place. And that, they don't that's a fair argument, but it doesn't address the fact that the game's economy did not work. Correct. I mean, it would, so, it would, you're definitely right. I'm not, I'm not challenging that it falls apart, but I do understand what they're getting at there, uh, what they're trying to model even if it doesn't necessarily work. So right. I agree with you, but I just wanted to jump in. Yeah, yeah, it didn't work like most Victoria games out of the box. And so I held back, and I watched, and I waited, and along came a mod called the Pop Demand Mod. It changed the demand for the pops in such a way that the economy made more sense. And now, for example, in this mod, I was focusing on fertilizer, so I'm going to stick with it. In this mod, the farmers needed fertilizer. So now there was a demand for fertilizer, and fertilizer factories didn't all go out of business in the game which they did in the original game, because there simply wasn't enough demand for it. And so the Pop Demand mod turned Victoria 2, the base game, into a much more playable game. It also added more events and countries and things like that, but it, it made it playable. Well, the House Divided expansion has gone beyond... Uh, the base game in a lot of ways, and one of the main things it's done is it's fixed the economy. You no longer need the Pop Demand mod to play base Victoria 2. You can actually have a fun game all the way to the end of the game where the economy functions reasonably well, and that sounds like the kind of thing you'd expect obviously to be shipped in a game right out of the box, but with a Paradox game, you can't necessarily expect that. So that's a huge feature for an expansion. It, it ought to be a day one patch. Right. It wasn't. It's in the expansion. That's SOP for Paradox, but it's something to be excited about if you like this kind of game. So real quick, I, uh, I want to mention two things. Uh, my own, the equivalent of fertilizer for me, mm -hmm. uh, I distinctly remember when I was first learning to play the game and digging into it, and, you know, I've talked about this idea of a chick parabola with strategy games where uh -huh. the, the early experience with the game is this really exciting, like, if you trace it over time and your excitement level, early on you go up this, like, steep arc, you know, you're climbing as you're getting more excited as you're learning and mastering the systems. And then invariably, not invariably, but often what will happen is you'll plateau once you've mastered the system and you understand what's going on. And then as you see something like the AI or 
as you're mentioning with a lot of paradoxes releases uh, an economy that falls apart after 20 30 years you know for whatever reason something will break and your excitement level will drop and yeah, that, that sounds is more like a sine wave than a parabola but I know exactly what you're talking about you know what I tried to call it a bell curve when I first introduced the concept and I can't be trusted to discuss anything with <laughs> math or statistics or graphs I think Bruce Garrick is the one that pointed out no that's kind of a uh, parabola. So whatever it is, uh, it got my name slapped on it because I tried to talk about it. But my experience with Victoria, uh, where the, the parabola, or the sine wave sort of peaked and then it started to fall, was I remember trying to make artillery to get an edge in some battles that I was fighting, and they wouldn't train. You know, I queued them up, and, and so Paradox has gotten so much better over the years at letting you find out why something is or isn't happening, which, by the way, is one of my huge problems with Crusader Kings 2, is I I find so much of that so inscrutable in that game. Like, why is something not or not happening? That's another reason I kind of want them to do some more work on it, maybe do an add-on for it. But what I found out in my game of Victoria 2, the reason why it wasn't happening is because to make artillery, you need... And this Explosive is almost and steel. Yeah, no, that's not all. You need the final ingredient, which I couldn't get because it was in huge demand on the world market for whatever reason. And this sounds counterintuitive. I'm not sure this is how I would make artillery, but what you need is liquor. <laughs> oh, you mean for the actual unit itself, right? Yeah. Right, right. The artillery factory needs explosives and steel, but when you recruit the men, right, they right. need liquor, exactly. right? Exactly. So yeah. I didn't, I couldn't get my my officers and and artillery uh, crew members or whatever liquored up enough to actually <laughs> deploy. Um, but so, so you're saying? Uh, oh, and the other thing I want to mention, Dave, is that uh, even though I do have some problems with Crusader Kings, this whole. Uh, you know, things falling apart. I, I, I just think it, they really do deserve recognition, and you did kind of acknowledge this, for releasing Crusader Kings in a far better state than so many of their other games. I, mean, I whatever think they've heard years' worth yeah. of criticism from people like me. I mean, I've mentioned it on the forums when Johan's been posting that they really need to, to drop this. We'll fix it months after the release model because it is pissing people off. It certainly alienated me as a fan. Paradox purchases went from automatic day one pre-order to yeah maybe i'll buy it in a year when it's on sale and there have been patches and mods like yeah. i was saying earlier well and while i certainly support your decision not to get into crusader kings 2 yet for whatever reason on principle or because you want to wait uh I, I really feel they do deserve props for even though i have some problems with it for the most part it doesn't seem like it it falls apart or breaks i mean there yeah. have been there's certainly a contingent of people saying yeah the way that the crusades work is broken and uh, but, you know, the it, it has a very vocal following that's more than happy to poke holes at where they think it's broken. But I feel that, for the most part, it's a, it's in a very solid state when it was released. Good. Um, Good. So, okay, so tell us a bit. So it, it fixes the economy. The uh, house-divided add-on for Victoria 2 addresses the economy. Uh, I know there were a couple other bullet points for it. What, what else yeah, stands out for you? Yeah, a bunch of others. That's, just, that's number one with a bullet, obviously, because if you don't have a working economy, you don't have a working game. So right. you've got to be most excited about that. But there's many other feature changes, too. Uh, they've got a whole new uh, Casus Belli system, for example. You can't just go to war with anybody you want and take a, an infamy hit, you know, a measure of how a aggressive and evil you are. You have to work at developing a war justification through the, the diplomacy screen. And that can go really well. In fact, it can go so well that you gain no infamy whatsoever and you just go to war happily with them and your reputation worldwide doesn't take a hit. Or it can go really badly and you can take a huge hit. 
And you have all kinds of different justifications from humiliating them to taking over a state to taking over colonial provinces to making them a puppet to forcing them to release puppets or whatever. It's just it's really well done. It adds an awful lot to the diplomatic model. So that's a, that's a big plus. You can basically have your own uh, either Remember the Main or Gulf of Tonka, it sounds like. Absolutely right. Yeah, it can go both ways. It, you know, if you've got uh, a bunch of yellow journalists in your country and William Randolph Hearst. <laughs> running, running the press. Yeah, it's going to be remember the main. But if it's Nixon and company, it's it's Gulf of Tonkin all over again. Exactly. All right. Uh, so what else jumps out at you? Uh, a bunch of UI improvements. Ah. Little, little things, but they make the game so much easier to play. You just click a whole lot less now. Uh, for example, there's now rally points for your armies. Ah, right. and you can have a different rally point on every continent or even uh, certain regions of, of continents. And you can have rally points for not just armies, but for ships. And you can go into the factory screen, and in the factory screen, you can set your national focuses. Like if you want to promote clerks to work at that factory, you don't have to move back out to the national map and go to that province and set your national focus there. You can do all of that from one screen. And there's a whole bunch of little touches like that that just streamline the whole play experience tremendously. Really nice. One of the things I seem to recall they mentioned that they were going to be patching in, I don't know if the patch is out yet, and it's something I wish was in Crusader Kings too. is the option to basically tether your army to an allied army. They so that have it, so that is in there now. Good. It is. Yeah, you can you can link the two together and they'll follow each other around. I don't use it much, but I tend to micromanage my wars to the nth degree. So it's it's not a feature that is of use for me, but I can see where where it would be fun for a lot of people who aren't so into the micromanagement aspect. I kind of wish now that that it would do the reverse of that and let me tell an allied army, hey, moron, stick with me. <laughs> you know, wherever I go, you go too. Yeah, that would be really useful because the, the military AI it does not seem much better in uh, in a house divided. I'm, I'm, I've never been impressed by the, the military AI in pretty much any Paradox game, and this is not an exception. The thing that uh, I recently found myself doing in Crusader Kings and kind of rolling my eyes and thinking, oh, God, haven't you guys fixed this yet, uh, is I would have a, a sizable army sieging uh, a province. Mm -hmm. And uh, there would be another army that isn't quite big enough to tackle it, so it knows better than to go into that province and attack me and try to relieve the siege. However, it will then head to an adjacent province that's mine to kind of counter-siege that. So what I do is I split off a group of units and tell them to move to the adjacent province where this enemy army is also going. Right. At which point, the moment I give it the order, the enemy army stops going there. Uh, now, yeah. I, don't, I don't want my army to actually go over there, so then I stop it. I, you know, I just don't want that guy to walk over there. And then the moment I stop my army, the enemy army tries to go back into that adjacent province. So I have to give my army another, you know, say, okay, go there. And then it stops the enemy army. And it's just that, this crazy dance. That's identical to Victoria 2. Well, they've always done that. I mean, it's part of their yeah. combat model. And it's part of the way the AI reacts. And I, I, I'm glad the AI isn't stupid enough to just saunter into this larger army. But this whole dance of waypoints is, mm -hmm. is just so annoying. And I kind of feel like... You have to do that. I mean, I, I can't let it just wander into that province. The army should be pinned there if it's not willing to engage me. Uh, so Yeah, the I, only way to cope with it is to huh? split your force up and kind of surround the enemy, 
or to have a faster army than the enemy army, you know, build lots of cavalry-only armies that can pin them down. Or whatever. There's ways around it, but I agree with you. It's needlessly complicated and extremely annoying, no doubt about it. So tell me about, as you're playing uh, Victoria 2, A House Divided, uh, what, what nation have you picked? Tell me a little bit about a game that you might have going. Yeah, my favorite games in Victoria are with the colonizing powers, just because there's more different things to do. If you play a nation that isn't a colonial, nation or isn't at least historically a colonial nation and you play it that way like say you play Austria and you play Austria historically and focus just on Europe you you cut off a, a whole portion of the world and a whole a right. whole chunk of the game and it's not as fun so I tend to play France and Germany if I do play a power like Austria or Russia I usually can't resist getting involved in colonization but then I feel guilty about playing so ahistorically and so <laughs> I, I don't really get into the game. And then again, if I play a, co- a, a country like England, which is just a ridiculously overpowered superpower, the game is no challenge. Right. So, yeah, I tend to gravitate towards France and uh, Germany, or rather forming Germany from Prussia as my two favorite countries. I'll, 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 I'll play around with everybody else, but they're my favorites, definitely. Here's a tip for your next game. You ready for this? Sure. Luxembourg. Luxembourg. No, no, don't play Luxembourg. <laughs> uh, all right, so uh, game of the week, Victoria Two: A House Divided. That worked out very well. I uh, now that I'm kind of done for a while with Crusader Kings Two, I've really been looking forward to getting back into that. Uh, yeah, I think you'll enjoy the experience a lot. And my favorite mod for Victoria Two, the Pop Demand mod, is updating to take the House Divided. Uh, changes into effect and i think they'll make it even better the pop demand mod has grown so far beyond just pop demands that even with the fixed economy it's going to add a lot to the game when uh, when it's ready to go they have some early releases out now but uh, they're still working through things i don't think it's quite ready for for prime time yet shall we okay. say well, you know what i'm so and I, I probably shouldn't be this way but i'm so reluctant to dive into some of those mods, unless it's some really big mod with its own agenda, like the Magister Mundi stuff for Europa Universalis. Like I, mm-hmm. I kind of feel like, you know what, I don't want hardcore fans banging on my game. You guys get out of there. So I, when you when you mention this, uh, this pop demand mod, after I've said, you know, like, do farmers really get their fertilizer from a factory? You know, if that's the model that they're introducing... I don't know that I, I think I want to trust Paradox. I don't. I don't know. I'm probably being very. Yeah, unfair. I see what you're saying. I got involved in mods early on with Paradox, though, all the way back during the original Hearts of Iron. I, I helped with uh, the bolted Hearts of Iron, the first main mod for that, and I also got involved in the EU2 and EU3 mod scene. But I, I, I stopped doing it because it was just too much work. I'd rather let people who obsess about the games more than I do do all the all the research and all the hard work, and I just play the finished product i guess i'm lazy that way but yeah i'm not i'm not a part of the mod scene anymore i just appreciate what they try to do so you're not using the 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 mod for house divided yet not yet it'll come though yeah uh mcmaster we want you to play victoria 2 and we're not going to make you be luxembourg uh however we want you to be uh bhutan sure so you will be the Prime Minister of Bhutan. I, you know what? Does that even exist back then? I'm not sure. It does, but I think it's part of England's sphere of influence and has very little freedom of action as a result. So. Okay, McMaster, you're governor of Bhutan, part of the uh, British Empire. 
All right, that sounds that sounds awesome. Yeah, just keep things quiet over there. Don't don't let the natives get restless. Let's let's not have any messy insurrections or anything like that. And we'll make sure you get plenty of fertilizer and liquor. That's all I need. You can build <laughs> artillery that way. That's right. That's- <laughs> all right, so uh, there we have our games of the week: a little Pinball FX2, a little Mass Effect 3, a little Victoria 2. Very uh, sequel heavy, I, I, I guess. Um, <laughs> McMaster, do we know who's on next week? Well, you know, uh, I believe we do, but uh, I may be wrong. Because I, I, but I'm doing it solo, right? Uh, well, maybe we'll have multiple people on. But yes, I'm afraid I will be at GDC. So uh, next week, you'll either do it solo or we'll have two guests. I, I don't know, but I know we have one guest lined up. Uh, let me see. We have Matt Boyer on the seventh. Um, oh, rats. I I love that Matt Boyer fellow. Uh, all right. Well, you know what? He'll have to fill in for me, and if you guys wanted to bring someone else along, but I can guarantee I, listeners, I, all right, you will at least have Jason McMaster and Matt Boyer there. Uh, Dave Markell, thank you so much for uh, joining us today, even if you didn't recognize the theme to Lord of the Rings. Yeah, I guess I just haven't watched the movies or studied my Tolkien <laughs> enough. I'm gonna have to. Uh, I'm gonna have to hit the DVDs and books hard after this. Yeah, a lot of people also mistake it for the theme to Raiders of the Lost Ark. Hmm. That's a tough one. Oh, yeah, yeah, I can see that. McMaster, I'm going to quickly play a round of Stump Jason McMaster. McMaster, hum the theme for Raiders of the Lost Ark. Go. (laughs) Nope, that's Jurassic Park. Now do do Lord of the Rings. <laughs> I can't even tell what that was. I can't. I don't have a clue. <laughs> it was close. All right. All right. So thanks for listening. Uh, please support us by uh, telling your friends about the Quarter to Three Games podcast. We love it when you rate us on iTunes. We love it when you like us on Facebook. And we have a Twitter feed now. It's at. QT3, letter Q, letter T, number three. Uh, please follow us on Twitter. Uh, I am Tom Chick, and I've been joined by the inimitable Jason McMaster and Tolkien geek extraordinaire Dave Markell. Thanks, guys, for joining us, and uh, we'll see everyone next week. It's the Lord of the Rings. Yes, it is. One to rule them all. Oh. Nine for the dwarves. Uh, this, this is the Seven for the elves. I'm gonna have I'm gonna have nightmares now. We all Here's Arwen. She likes Vito. Vigo. Vigo. <laughs> and you have a mini podcast. Wow. Vito.